Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. Seasons, greetings, fellow box openers, and welcome to a most festive installment of Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. This is Kevin Brown. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday. I know I certainly am until yesterday. I had a bunch of knee cases lined up, which meant totes in receiving for as far as the eye could see, something that did not go unnoticed by one particular materials employee. He was so vociferous in his complaints, now there's a good word for you, that the purchasing director actually had to step in to defend me. Now that was a Christmas miracle. He said, Cameron, you need to be sweeter. Be nicer. It's Christmas. I should have just kept my big rep mouth shut and just basked in the glow of a purchase director actually defending me. But no, I had to put my two cents in here. Yeah, Cameron, what happened to deck the halls? And fa-la-la, I'm gonna deck your halls, he shot back. All I could think of at that exact moment, isn't it the most wonderful time of year? Well, don't be decking anybody's halls. Get your totes out of Cameron's way, but don't leave receiving just yet, as we have an amazing delivery for you today. And no, it's not whole for pickup, so you don't have to go anywhere. We're gonna take you along for an RV road trip. Don't worry, you won't have to empty the Blackwater tanks. We're going to share what happened at the current Concepts and Joint Replacement meeting, and then we're going to tie it all up in a Christmas-sized boat with an inspiring conversation with this year's Device Nation Surgeon Santa. And I believe this episode to be the very first podcast across all mediums to utilize a robotic arm with conversational haptic feedback. Pretty awesome technology. We're going to explore that and so much more with Oklahoma City reconstruction icon Dr. Paul Jacob. You're going to want to hang around the loading dock for that one. Well, you know what? The holidays means not hanging around for a lot of folks. It spells travel to see families, something the Brown family has done quite a bit of here at the end of the year and checking out a meeting along the way. I love traveling in the RV with my wife and Zeke. He never looks up and says, are we there yet? We always see something we've never seen before, like a bumper sticker I saw on the highway that said, tell your cat. I said, P.S. 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 It literally took us both about 10 miles and sounding it out phonetically. Yeah, you figured it out. Tell your cat, I said, pss, pss, pss. Just absolutely hilarious. Something else we've never seen before on any of our epic road trips. We got stuck in the left lane in a long line of traffic behind a slow car on Highway 10 outside Tallahassee. I know some of you are thinking there's nothing new about that, Kevin. Well, I'll tell you what was different here. When we finally got to the front of the line and laid eyes on the car that was creating all this drama, it turns out it was not a smoking Kia Sorento with both bumpers missing. No, it was a brand new Lamborghini Huracan. (laughs) Ever see a car like that slowing up? everyone down. Side note, the Huracan is my bucket list ride for three reasons. The first two being the exhaust sound and the third, I want to put a student driver sticker on the rear of it because that would be hilarious. I wanted to pull over this particular Lambo driver and say, look buddy, I know how much these cars cost. You've earned the right to speed. Go faster than 57 in a 70 mile an hour zone. I'll pull over on the shoulder out of respect with my hazards on. I'll even salute you as you whiz by. Unlike the smoking Kia Sorento with both bumpers missing maniac driver I saw weaving in and out, flipping everyone off just moments later. Half this guy's car was missing. I wanted to pull him over and say, look, man, be nicer, be sweeter. It's Christmas. <laughs> well, further into Florida, we stopped by every RV owner's favorite truck stop, Bucky's, for something sweeter. Now, listen to me. My father-in-law starts out virtually every conversation with that line for some reason. Now, listen to me. Don't eat the beaver nuggets. I know they have that Stucky's pecan roll tourist trap vibe 
vibe. Everybody says you got to have them. Resist the urge. They're gunstusting. That's how my son pronounced disgusting when he was five. We got to keep the legacy alive. So as I purposely passed all those nefarious nuggets, I passed the food station and was stopped in my tracks. They were making sliced brisket sandwiches piled high. And for yours truly, whose diet is 90% vegetarian and 10% brisket, well, that was a no-brainer. So I bought one. These sandwiches are so huge. My wife and I got one and we shared it. Here's what happened next. We're riding down the road. She took the first bite. She gives it back to me. I took a bite or two. No meat. That was weird. Hand it back to her. She gives it back to me. Same thing. I'm thinking, what is happening here? This is like a nightmare. Before I even had a chance to organize a protest, she took that last bite and with a smile looked at me and said, was that not the most amazing sandwich ever? Why, yes, dear. Never in my life has there been a more perfect pairing of bread and sauce. Okay, so I exaggerated. My diet is more like 50% vegetarian, 10% brisket, and 40% sarcasm. We figured it out later. Whenever she would take a bite, the way they stacked the slices, it was like pulling out the next three to four centimeters of meat, leaving yours truly with take it away, Yukon Cornelius. Nothing. Well, the opposite of nothing is something. And because of the CCJR meeting being in Orlando, we got to really see something as in something else. The Fort Wilderness Campground there at Disney World. It is Christmas Palooza. Everyone has to see this at least once. Just amazing seeing what Christmas lights and display shows these RV people construct around their sites. We were walking around taking all the Star Wars theme displays in, trying unsuccessfully, I might add, to keep Zeke from attacking the veritable army of inflatable Santa Clauses. And what to my wondering eyes would appear a 500-pound guy holding his dog so dear. This was quite a sight to see, by the way. This guy was so huge, and his dog was literally in his hand. The name of the dog, Peanut. Of course his name's Peanut, weighing in at about eight ounces soaking wet. This man had a look of desperation on his face. A little panic-stricken. Seems like he needed a bag to clean up after his dog and couldn't find one anywhere. For what, I asked? A Tic Tac? Well, if you were to put some Tic Tacs in our pockets to keep an ear out on where we were on this particular weekend on our travels, obscure Seinfeld reference there, you would have found us at the Hip and Knee Society Current Concepts in Joint Replacement Meeting. My first time at this conference sandwich, so to speak. So worth the drive. Why a conference sandwich, you ask? Well... It's tucked in between Christmas and Thanksgiving, the bread, and so much great content. This conference is the meat in the middle, the sliced brisket, and a huge Device Nation thank you to Dr. Keith Barron and all the wonderful folks there that rolled out the red carpet for us. As I think back on this meeting, I think of a lot of things, but one thing I will never forget is walking down the staircase to the exhibit hall and seeing a sign right there in front of me with the names of the Hip and Knee Society members there. I literally stopped and stared. Hey, I'm an ortho groupie. And I am not ashamed. I thought, wow, the combined knowledge, experience, and wisdom on that board, no bread sandwiches here. They really put the meat in meeting. I know, I know, I can't help myself, but I'm feeling I should trademark that. Really want to help yourself in a way that will certainly be cheaper than a trademark application. How about making a New Year's resolution for 2024 to attend just one meeting? It's not going to be cheap. Just the campsite, a campsite at Fort Wilderness with sewer, electric, parking pad, and a great view of 10,000 inflatable Imperial Stormtrooper Santas. Well, that was $300 a night out of my pocket. When I got back to the RV, I kind of expected a mint on the pillow on top 
top of that, I had to pay for fuel, sliced brisket, sandwiches, Ubers. I had to pay people back home to move totes out of Cameron's way. Wouldn't it be so much cheaper and easier just to stay home and put trays together? Yes, for the caretaker route. But if you want to be a partner, not a peddler in 2024, we're all going to have to step up our game on this meeting front, as that is the only way that I know of to source products, services, and solutions on behalf of our surgeons and facilities. Now listen to me. It is so easy to get landlocked, planning cases, case coverage, and trays and admin, as important as all that is. It's just not a deposit anymore. That's our job. Caretaker reps live and breathe that, but we aspire to to be so much more. Here's a holiday theme to get you well on your way to putting Overtaker Rep on your business card. Focus on giving in 2024, not getting. That's what Surgeon Santa's all about. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what being an Overtaker Rep is all about. Here's a personal example. I shared the new one tray easy tracks tray consolidation system with this audience that has been a game changer for me in my ASC. I think it's going to be a game changer for OEMs, but that's another story. Guess what? I don't make a dime of commission off of this product. No commission breath here. Giving, not getting. If you want to see what all the buzz is about and try it for free, see what happens when you let something go. It comes right back. Email them at the total solution at one tray. It's been a real present under the tree for everyone that's brought it into their account. So as we go into this new year, nicer and sweeter means looking for opportunities to help others, our surgeons, our facilities, connecting them with companies like Mend, Hemaclear, Romtech, Next Science, Simplex, Surge Investment Group, Legally Mind, even Threadwell Custom Clothing. And some really cool things coming from the great folks at Ceramtech. All these things I uncovered at this most recent CCJR meeting, and I'm taking back to my territory. Notice that none of these are metal and plastic. One Depew distributor I know who is just phenomenal at what he does, one of the best in the industry, I see him at every meeting, not at the Depew booth so much, but on the floor talking to exhibitors, looking for solutions. I took note of that years ago and knew I could learn something from him. We can all learn something. Y'all did great with three in 2023. Let's look forward to four in 2024, adding four lines to our bag that don't compete with our existing lines, making us more relevant than ever in as many cases as possible and adding a little ASP and commission cut insurance to the mix for good measure. What say we all do that next year in Great Fun and Orlando? Check out some booths and share what's working together. Well, our next guest is relevant in quite a few cases and has been working very hard. He doesn't need the excuse of Christmas to be kinder and sweeter. He seems to be pulling that off year round, taking care of the good people all around Oklahoma City. Our 2023 Surgeon Santa recipient Dr. Paul Jacob, welcome to Device Nation, sir. Honestly, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm always kind of shocked when anybody's interested in hearing my story. And of course, it's my most favorite topic uh, is talking about me. So <laughs> I ho- hopefully we get a good discussion going today. Well, I don't think we're going to have any problem there, Dr. Jacob. I've been following your story for some time now. So many amazing things that have your name attached to them. I'm honored that you would come on the show as part of our special Surgeon Santa episode. You passed the beard qualifier with flying colors, by the way. It's my wife's idea. I used to just do a goatee, and she said, you know, let's 
cover up more of that face. So. <laughs> Ouch. Well, if it was just the beard, BMI, and a trusty pipe, that's one thing. But the real St. Nicholas used his inheritance to take care of the sick, destitute, and the needy. And I cannot wait to talk about what you've done with your inheritance there at the Oklahoma Joint Reconstruction Institute, your groundbreaking work in the robotic space, wearables, physical therapy, and so much more. But first, let's go back to Akron, Ohio. What was it like growing up in the Jacob household? You know, I think back with many fond memories of my childhood. I grew up in North East Ohio. So, you know, it's a gloomy, lots of snow close to Lake Erie. So, uh, you know, we had a great childhood growing up. I have one older brother who's smart enough to not be in medicine. And then my mom and dad, my dad uh, worked for Goodyear Tire and my mom was a school teacher for well over 30 years. Now, one thing that we hear a lot about on the show is that crossroad between an injury and an orthopedic surgeon at an early age. Did, did anything oh, yeah. like that happen to you? Yeah, you know, I played sports uh, growing up uh, since I can remember. My dad coached, you know, a bunch of my baseball teams, and I always seemed to have something that was bothering me, but you know, my parents were really nervous about me playing football. And I remember thinking, I've got to show them that I can do this and I'm not going to hurt myself. In seven days into my football career, I fractured my patella oh, wow. and was out for the season. In peewee in Ohio, peewee football, you had a maximum weight and I never could make the weight cut off. So every year I would be demoralized by going to the town center and getting weighed in and them saying, you're too heavy. You can't play this year. So finally, I get to seventh grade. I'm able to play and uh, fracture my patella. And so I was out for the season. Luckily, I was able to talk my parents into letting me give it another go. But that was my first foyer into physical therapy. When I came out of the cast, I had some PT to do. I was dead set on, at that time, really anything in orthopedics, but I really loved the rehab experience. So that's where my early interests were. What a great segue there, sir. I've only run across one orthopedic surgeon in my life that started their career as a physical therapist. Uh, I can see what pulled you into it in the first place. Tell me about that journey. Like many of us, I started as a patient. I liked my doctor, but I just didn't have a whole lot of exposure to my doctor. I saw him 10-minute visit here and there. It was pretty much a quick check-in, quick check-out. But I was working with a physical therapist named Kevin, and he was awesome. And I spent, you know, two, three days a week with him, and I bounced ideas off him, and he gave me a lot of education, training, knowledge. And that just really interested me, the the one-on-one patient care over a long period of time and watching that patient's journey from completely limited to back to normal was something that I thought was amazing. And so I kind of started very early on setting my mind to the fact that I was going to be an athletic trainer or physical therapist at some point. I understand the training in PT these days is somewhat akin to medical school. It's very rigorous. Am I wrong? Well, you know, that's actually how I got into medical schools. I was having this exact argument with a buddy of mine who had gone to medical school. And I said, look, I think it's harder to get into PT school than it is to get into medical school. And at that time, most of the programs were either a bachelor's or a master's. And so there was very little doctor of physical therapy programs out there. The schools that had programs, maybe they only had 10 seats a year or so. And so there was a limited number of schools and there were a limited number of seats. It's a highly competitive field. It attracts a lot of very intelligent individuals. And so we were having this argument kind of bantering back and forth. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to prove you wrong. I said, I'm going to tip for the MCATs. 
and I'm going to try and get into medical school. I took the MCAT uh, 11 days later. I had to sign up last minute. And I think like many other of the graduate school testing, it's more about test-taking theory than it is about actual knowledge base. And I'm lucky to have spent quite a bit of time focusing on how to take tests in general. So I took the MCAT, I started applying. I thought osteopathic medical school fit me a little bit better because I didn't want to give up my PT background. And I thought that, you know, hey, I'm going to be able to continue on with my manual therapy skills and maybe take those skills to the next level. I was an adult at that time, so paying for my own school, and it did not fall short on me that that was also the least expensive medical school in the state. So that was the one that I chose for lots of good reasons. And the MCAT shut me down, sir. They would not accept my stellar Gallup test results. <laughs> you would go on to Ohio University, study osteopathic mm-hmm. medicine. I understand even then. You were involved in serving underserved folks right there in the Appalachia. That's an interesting part of the country. We often think we know what poor and underserved patients and communities look like, but Appalachia is a a different level of lack of service and big need. Often those patients don't see themselves as being in need or not having the resources that they want. They are incredibly smart people who just figure out a way. And they've been doing that for a long time. And But when I got there, I was able to see the level of children with type 2 diabetes in that area. It was tremendous, The not only the amount of disease, but the level to which it had progressed before those patients were able to or did reach out for medical care. So it was immediately something I was interested in, I was fascinated by, and that has continued to grow. Exciting stuff. I want to explore on that subject with you later. But first, orthopedic residency at the second largest osteopathic medical training program in the U.S., Doctors Hospital there in Columbus, Ohio. You know, it was a great a great place to train. There are three residencies in Columbus. There's Ohio State University, there's Mount Carmel, and then there's our program. But we really function as one very large residency. So we cross cover each other's facilities. We all spread the call out. And so we got access to a large academic medical center, to a smaller community hospital setting. And then we had the level one trauma center downtown Columbus was the third wing of our training. And so I don't know that I could have received better training and education. And like many other residents, I learned as much about what to do and how to do things as I did what not to do and how not to do things. I got to ask you, while you were in your training there, uh, was there anything in particular that presented as a, a gravitational pull towards our reconstruction world? Like I said, I got exposure to trauma, to academic medicine, to community hospitals, and I started to pay attention to who I saw myself in, in my training program. And so there was a couple of surgeons that we had exposure to. Dr. Rob Feda was a big influence on me early on, and he was a big football player kind of guy and kind of a no-nonsense, no BS kind of guy. I was drawn toward that. Also, while I was a physical therapist, I paid a lot of attention to what did well, what recovered well. Right. And what did poorly and recovered poorly, regardless of how good the surgeon was or how compliant the patient was, there were just certain things that didn't do well. For instance, calcaneal fractures, you can make them look beautiful. You can restore the anatomy, 
to perfection. And those patients just tend to do poorly over time. Right. And so I was able to see the backside before I saw the front side of orthopedic surgery. And I went to medical school knowing that I wanted to be a fellowship trained joint surgeon. I, I don't know that many people know what subspecialty of the area they're going to choose to go in. That was always my focus from day one. Well, you couldn't have picked a better place for that subspecialty, the Cleveland Clinic. That just had to have been an amazing experience there. Yeah. You know, I have no idea why they selected me. I, I often think that my application accidentally ended up on the wrong pile, but um, <laughs> I, I managed to get my foot in the door there. And that for me was the very moment that my career path changed. Now, like many residents, I just didn't know what my skill level was. I didn't know, can I do this? There was a massive level of self-doubt that I really struggled with. And when I got to my fellowship, it was a real gentleman's fellowship. I couldn't have found a program that better fit what I needed than that program. Uh, it really supplied confidence and education next level training, the attendings there, every one of them to a person I consider a personal friend and mentor to this very day. I've never heard that phrase before, a gentleman's fellowship. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's often a term that we use in training programs. Essentially, that means they're going to treat you like a professional colleague and not an underling. A big part of, and maybe not so much today, but a big part of residency training, similar to fraternities, is there was some level of harshness to it. Sure. And we're talking about life and death situations in, in some instances. And so, you know, you have, you've got to be serious about your training. And some attendings are, are more serious than others and will let you know what they thought about you more than others did. Um, and, uh, and so when I got to my fellowship, I, I was really kind of on the mindset of, you know, you're in the room, but you're, you're to be seen and not heard when your opinion is wanted, it'll be asked for. And really, you know, I started to hear things in the OR like, Hey, what do you think? What would you do here, Paul? And I had not heard those questions before. And so I started to feel comfortable with talking about what I thought we should do and my opinions and my previous background and, and that's when I really started to become the surgeon I am today. I started to feel comfortable with my knowledge and education and training. And then I was supported by the attendings there in Cleveland and I was able to kind of take off. Anything or anybody that really rode on your eventual career trajectory during your time there? There were so many guys that I just was absolutely, I'm still, you know, surgeons kind of, uh, we, I have people in my life that I think of as almost celebrity status, you know, uh, like a professional athlete in my mind. And sure. I'm going to try and go through a long list of people, but I was really fortunate to have trained under guys like Trevor Murray and Carlos Higuera and Mike Bloomfield, who are big names now, but at that time, they're only a year or two ahead of me in their training. So I got to work with guys who, who were essentially what I was going to be in a year and watch what they did and how they did it and how they approached cases. And then of course got to work with the great Will Barsoom, who is the most charismatic, knowledgeable human being that I know. I learned a lot from Victor Krebs on how to keep a level head, even when it's hit the fan and you're kind of in panic mode. Right. The, we do the biggest of the big cases with him. And I distinctly remember walking out of his OR after about six weeks and thinking there's literally not a single case that could walk through my door 
that I wouldn't feel 100% comfortable taking care of on my very first day in clinical practice. Wow. You can't put a value on that. No. And then I had um, Mark Formson, who's past president of AUKUS and is really a more of a life coach and mentor to me to this very day. And my practice probably mimics Bob Malloy's practice closely. I still use many of his OR techniques. And, and of course, I use all the sayings that I used to hear every day as a fellow from all those guys. I still, to this very day, use the same language and make the same jokes and tell the same stories. You know, there are a lot of sayings that I hear surgeons repeat that they learned in training. Anyone mm-hmm. in particular that jumps out at you that you heard over and over? I've always heard it came from Dick Scott at New England Baptist, but essentially it boils down to there's good fast surgeons and there's bad fast surgeons, but there's no such thing as a good slow surgeon. I didn't really understand what that meant while I was training, but I do understand that today. And it's not about the pace of the surgery. It's really about when you know what you're doing, it doesn't take you long to do it. That's a great one. A notable quotable. Here we are, nine years later, Oklahoma Joint Reconstruction Research Institute. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your practice. Yeah, so when I got to the group that I'm with, there was no fellowship-trained adult recon here. I didn't have a partner to kind of fall back on, to bounce ideas off of. I had a lot of sports medicine partners and hand and upper extremity, and we had foot and ankle, but no joints guys, lots of spine guys. I think that was very valuable for me. I didn't fall into the rut that my previous partners had created. Everything that I did was kind of from scratch, and I had a set of ideas that I wanted to see my practice evolve into. And I can promise you, just about everybody that I told what those ideas were thought I was crazy and it was unaccomplishable. So I set out to build the ideal joint surgeon's practice and create exactly what I wanted, exactly how I wanted it. And it makes for a happy surgeon and that makes for happy patients. So I got to my group in 2014 and decided to essentially create my perfect practice. And I'm still trying to do that to this very day, but I'm pretty happy. I remember you making some comment about how many joint replacements you were doing a year, just your fourth year in. In my fourth year, I hit a thousand cases. Wow. I had no desire to be doing that kind of case volume, but there is a massive need here in Oklahoma. There isn't a whole lot of people who do what I do. And I was just embraced 100% by the community here and by my physician partners. And I just got really busy really fast. I fell into a exceptional opportunity and all the stars aligned and I was able to build a nice early practice. What's your mix? Mostly knees, mostly hips, a little bit of both? You know, I'm probably 60-40 knees to hips. Uh, I love my revision work. I won't give it up. You know, I have a couple of junior partners who I'm very proud of, and we're building toward a fellowship here in the next couple of years. And they often will kind of encourage me to kick some of those cases down to them, but I still love it. I learn more from revision work than I do from any other facet of my practice, and I'm just not ready to give it up yet. We all have kind of a morbid curiosity with disaster plasties. As you look back on your career so far, is there one revision case that kind of jumps out at you that was just a really big challenge and and everything came out good? Yeah, you know, I've, I've had several of those. One I'm probably most proud of, you know, part of my role here in Oklahoma is to support physicians in rural communities who are being asked to care for diseases and and problems that maybe are a bit beyond their skill level, but there's nowhere to send them. So I got a call from a surgeon just on the border of Oklahoma, Texas, and he said, look, I'm in a bad situation here. I've got a guy, of course, it was a work comp claim. 
He did a primary total knee. It got infected. He was eight washout slash antibiotic spacers in. Wow. And he called and said, I don't know what else to do with this guy. And he's refusing an amputation. What do you think? And so over about a two-year period, I pulled just about every trick I've got in my book out. And we were able to salvage this guy's leg. He's now probably three or four years infection-free, pain-free. He's still working full-time as a garbage man. Loves uh, every day. Is thankful for what we were able to do for him. And, and I'm pretty proud of that case and that patient. And that's really the gist of what I love about what I do. Well, one thing I know that you love to do is anything that involves haptic feedback. Your name has been synonymous with Mako Robotics for as long as I can remember. Walk us through your journey with that technology. Yeah, you know, I, I was blessed to have access to uh, Mako Robotics when it was still Mako independent of Stryker uh, as a resident. So in about 2009-ish, we got a robot in Columbus. A surgeon named Sharat Kasuma was the driving force at getting there. He's now with uh, Exact Tech. He brought that in and really bestowed a a lot of knowledge on the value of robotics and haptics and three-dimensional planning and the CT scan. and, And I immediately was fascinated by this. There's no better way to teach a resident what are the implications of shifting a tibial base plate proximally or distally or medially or laterally, adding slope, taking slope out. You could see in real time what that did to the balance of the joint and the alignment. I felt like the robot was teaching me as much as my attending physicians were. You know, my interest grew until I got here to Oklahoma City, and then there was an uphill battle to convince my partners that this was worth the hefty price tag and that it would pay off in the long run. I think I did 235 cases the year prior to us getting the robot, and I did 759 my first year with robotics. You know, whether you like robotics or you hate robotics, there is something to be said for the patient's interest in robotic technology. Indisputable. Stryker did take a lot of heat for that purchase. I, I know a lot of people oh, yeah. thought the spin was too much and, and there was a million objections, but I looked at some figures recently. I believe by the end of 2020, about 44% of all of their total knee procedures were done with a Mako robot. So that's vindication there for sure. That's worldwide. And that number is quite a bit higher today than it was when those numbers came out. Well over 50% of all triathlons are implanted with robotics and the number of cementless implants is skyrocketing right behind the number of implants that are being put in robotically. And a lot of the success of that cementless technology is based on the accuracy and the reproducibility of the makeup. For people listening that are new to the industry and they really don't understand a lot about Mako and what all it brings to the table, if you were describing this machine to my mother, what does it bring? As I was kind of delving into robotics, I I was kind of probing my patients, why are you interested in robotics? What have you heard about robotics? Well, I heard it's safer. Okay, well, why? And there was really not a good answer to that. Well, I heard the infection rate's lower, or I heard this, or I heard that. I was just really interested in what the patients knew about robotics. And the answer is very, very little. Even the patients I operate on, who I spend a tremendous amount of time trying to describe the procedure to, have very poor knowledge of the true advantages of robotics. But really, it's a arm 
with a saw attached to it that provides some guidance and some boundaries based on some information that I give it in surgery and some information that the CT scan provides to the platform. And it helps me be safer, more accurate, um, and able to reproduce a successful joint replacement over and over again. What procedures are you currently using it on? I use it for revision work. I use it for all of my, 100% of my primary joints. We use robotics on. I don't upcharge my patients. I don't do any additional cash-based costs to the patient. My hospital has been very generous in allowing me to provide Whatever care I think is very best for my patient, however I choose to provide that care. And we, of course, try to do it in a cost-effective manner, but I truly feel like the best way to make a joint replacement cost-effective is to do it to an exceptional level, and all the rest falls into place. That creates less PT, less pain medication usage, returns patients to the workforce faster. There are many, many advantages that you can't truly measure or put a value on that are valuable. Any particular procedure you think showcases the technology the best? For me, I'm going to give an answer that I think probably uh, 1% of the rest of the country would give, but I think Total Hips is where the platform truly shines. And And I'll tell you why I say that. We measure success in joint replacement with a very poor bar. Meaning in the literature, often we judge a successful total knee replacement is still being in the patient 10 years from the index surgery and the patient functioning on a daily basis. That is a very poor measure of success. Uh, And we do the same thing for hips, right? So if it doesn't get infected and it doesn't dislocate, you're welcome. We can do so much better. Better at reproducing leg length and femoral offset with robotics. We have less iliopsoas tendonitis and bursitis less trochanteric bursitis issues. The little things that are little to us as surgeons are big deals to our patients. Nobody wants to trade one problem for another one. Right. If we can do a little bit better, you know, we don't think about hip replacement as a gap balancing procedure, but that's exactly what we're doing. And when we lengthen from the cup side by using, for instance, a, an offset polyethylene, we're increasing joint reaction forces. But if we lengthen from the stem side, we decrease joint reaction forces. If we do a better job uh, as surgeons of teaching our young trainees as we come up about gap balancing hips, understanding the implications of cup that's a size or two too large, or the anterior flange of that cup uh, overhanging the anterior rim of the acetabulum, you know, if we do a better job of educating on what those problems were generating based on those decisions, and then we give you the tools to correct it and make better decisions, we get better outcomes. Well, Dr. Jacob, I'm part of that 1%. I've attended several MAKO cases, hip and knee, and it was the hip that blew me away. I mean, leg length, offset, we get all that stuff. But seeing that 4.0 software in effect, I was blown away. The center of rotation, being able to haptically shut down that reamer to stop you at that point where we're not going to start medializing, pretty cool stuff to me. Very much so. I got to publish this data, but about two years ago, I put together a, a data set, on average, I'm four cup sizes smaller with robotics than non-robotics. Wow. So with non-robotics, we're all trying to get to a 52 cup or whatever size cup you can get a 36 head in that or an anatomic head in that hip for stability and jump distance and all those things that we like to talk about, pontificate on in the operating room. But when you have 
Mako, you already know what decisions you're making and how much inter and posterior wall you're taking, where the center of rotation is, how much medial wall you have left. And then you can decide, do I want to go up and get a bigger head? Do I want to stay smaller and go with a dual mobility implant? Am I comfortable with a 32 millimeter or 28 millimeter head in this scenario? I would tell you that prior to robotics for me, a 28 millimeter head was a rare thing. I don't even think twice about a 28 or a 32 millimeter head right. on a daily basis with what I do now. Well, Dr. Jacob, I just got back from CCJR and all the major companies had a robot on display. And uh, apart from haptic feedback, which is pretty cool, anything else that makes the Mako different? For me, I think the most valuable aspect is the CT scan. I know that many other companies use that as a dig on striker. Oh, you got to get a CT and you're getting irradiated. And when you talk to the radiologist, the amount of radiation you're getting for essentially a, a non-diagnostic CT is very low. The information you get from that CT is extraordinary. So if I if they told me you can have haptics or you can have 3D templating or you can have all the other things that come along with makeup, the one I would not give up is the three-dimensional templating. Three dimensions. How about two words? I've been hearing more and more about with this platform, data analytics. Yeah. What is it and where are we with all that? That's a great question. If we played a drinking game at Academy, every time somebody said the word data, we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> right. um, it, it just is, it's just a word that's thrown around right now. There's massive amounts of data and we don't have the ability to do much with it right now. I think PROMS data is an incredibly poor way to evaluate success or failure in joint replacement. I can't have any impact on the current patient when I collect PROMS data two years post-op. So I think it's an academic measure and it's great for research, but it's limited in its impact on the current patient. And so Stryker has decided with all this information we're collecting, the CT scans and the interoperative data, and now with wearable sensors, both preoperatively and postoperatively, we've got a really, really nice data set that we can start to tease out what really moves the needle, what really does make a difference right. uh, in patient outcomes. And so insightful data analytics is, is Stryker's marketing term for collecting every aspect of the data from the second the patient walks into the door to the second they're quote-unquote healed and done with their recovery, and then using that to make both that patient's journey and every patient after that person safer, better, more likely to be successful. You've done a lot of training for Stryker to help surgeons be successful. For that mm -hmm. surgeon with zero experience on the platform, is there any one procedure you think is best for them to dip their toe in, so to speak, for that first case? Yeah, I think everybody kind of starts with the uni, right? right? It's a technically demanding procedure. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I've done unis manual unis. I was a big fan of the Zook. I've used the PKR. Uh, I've used the, probably five or six different uni platforms. There has been multiple times when I've walked out of the OR and after a manual uni and thought, I just absolutely crushed that case. That thing is perfect. And then you get the post-op x-rays and you go, oh my God, this, <laughs> you put the wrong actor, you x-rayed the wrong patient, you know. And so I think robotics has really moved the needle and there's some good longer-term data now on fixed-bearing uh, robotic unis uh, outperforming many counterparts. And so I think that's the first arm of that, quote-unquote, long-term data everybody is looking for in robotics. You know, we don't do as many unis as we do total hips and total knees. Even for experienced guys, 
you know, we're not all Keith Barron. We're not all doing, you know, a thousand unis a year. And so it's one of those procedures that when it goes well, it's your happiest patient. When it goes poor, everybody's saying to themselves, I should have just done the total. Uh, I don't know why I got talked into this. And, and it creates for a bad situation. Sideline question here. I've seen surgeons with two different philosophies on this. Do you cut at a fixed slope for all your unis or do you tend to to want to match the patients? And nothing I do is dogmatic. So every single patient has a different tibial slope. Every single patient has a different ferrous valgus angle. Right. I have very few things that I say, I'm doing this every single time. Right personalized alignment. Oh gosh, we've created a whole mess with balancing knees and um, gap balancing in particular. Now there's 50 different techniques and everybody's got a great story and very convincing on why what they do is the right way to do it. But I think when it really comes down to it, robotics gives us the ability to do all of those balancing techniques, sometimes in the same case. For one patient, they might work great with a kinematic or a reverse kinematic alignment. Another patient might just need a straightforward measure resection technique. Another person might do better with this or that, but the platform allows you to not be dogmatic in the technique you choose, but allows you to customize that technique for each individual patient. Well, Dr. Jacob, this podcast came out of creating content on LinkedIn that I called Stupid Rep Tricks. And I'm just curious, any stupid robot tricks you've picked up along the way with your training and with your personal experience that have really helped you and other surgeons? This is, again, a slippery slope here. I'm going to get in a little bit of trouble (laughs) with the powers that be. But, you know, as you move forward with robotics, you know, the big knock at first was, oh, it costs you time. You know, you're going to lose time and yeah, maybe it's a little bit more accurate, but it's not worth it in the long run. I don't like the term time neutral. When you're adopting new technology, you want it to make you better in every aspect of the surgery, including the time it takes you to do that procedure. Right. Um, You know, I think clearly one of the biggest determinants of prosthetic joint infection is length of time that joint was open in the operating room. And so that's a big focus on infection control for me. So I didn't want to be time neutral. I wanted to be faster and I didn't want it to be just a little faster. I wanted to be significantly faster. For me, that was a big push. And the way that I did that was figure out what things are important that I need to keep and what things do we have to do? Because that's the way we did it when we certified it through the FDA that's the way we have to teach it. Right. So there are many things that you are overkill or extra, or you don't really need to do. And so I started to figure out which one of those I could eliminate and how much time would it save me? And what am I giving up by eliminating that? And I kind of slowly, but surely weaned the process down to its essentials. Things I'm sure you'd be glad to share. People come up there and watch you work. I understand there's a formalized program where people can actually work with you. Is that right? Yeah, we we have kind of an interesting setup. We have a virtual operating room. So any surgeon who's anywhere in the world can contact us. And if they want to see a robotic procedure or a particular technique or something with the revision platform or the new hinge or whatever, you name it, they can log in. There's a camera on my head. There's a camera in the light. There are cameras throughout the room. 
and they can watch and talk to me live. I can talk to them directly. They are in control of the cameras, so they can zoom in and see what they want to see. And of course, they can always spend a day in the OR with us. But there are multiple vehicles for education and training through my group and my practice. You think I should put a camera on my head and let people around the world watch me open boxes? You think I'd have an audience for that? One of the things I'll tell you, that that was one of the beauties of COVID. We had to figure out how to train people without bringing them face-to-face with us. And right. so, yes, I think there is a massive need. You know, Kevin, reps in particular, it's on-the-job training, right? You might get a rep that does a great job training junior reps, and you might get a guy who's just annoyed by that, and you've got to try and learn on your own. Well, I think there's just as much need for reps training under other highly successful reps as there is for surgeons. I completely agree. And I'm still trying to figure that piece of the puzzle out because uh, there's so much in my repertoire that I actually picked up from reps that work across the aisle from me. And coming up up with a way to collectively share that when we're all trying to destroy each other. (laughs) I have have not figured that out yet. You know, that's part of uh, what I think makes a, a truly successful rep is the guy who stops competing with the other companies and says, you know what? I might recommend to my surgeon that they use something from Smith and Nephew because I, I've seen that and I say, hey, this is better than what I have to offer you. Let's do what's best for the patient. And I think I'm starting to see that more and more. Um, again, I'm probably going to get in a little trouble here, but let's face it, there there isn't a whole lot of difference between the big four or five companies when you put implants next to each other across the board, you're often it's hard pressed to tell the difference even from one company to the next. Agree. So last to hear it now, sir. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about the future of this platform. According to strategic market research, the global surgical robot market was one point two billion in twenty twenty one, and they predict six billion by twenty thirty. I'm just curious, as you travel around the country, do you see that momentum continuing to build here in the US? Without question. It's interesting. There's this big knock on, hey, all the data coming out, all the research coming out, it's all from consultants. It's all from guys using this equipment. I will turn that around and say the guys complaining the most about robotics are the guys who have done the least robotic cases. And so I don't know why that is, but there's often this big push to stay. I'm a non-robotic guy. I can do it all on my own. That's great. My ego is not so big that I can't say that I'm better with robotics than not with robotics. But the downside is there is no definition right now for what is robotics. Right. You know, so essentially any company can slap a cutting block onto a device and say, we have a robotic platform. I think we, we need to, as surgeons, put together a list of criteria that we think you must provide in order to call yourself robotics. Otherwise, the majority of these platforms really are navigation. And we've been down that road and we know where it ends. So uh, I think once we get a set definition for robotics and we can start working toward everybody's platform raising the bar, I think you're going to see outcomes improve. You know, everybody was really harping on the Australian registry data this year because, you know, you didn't see a statistically significant difference. 
you are seeing a separation or a diverging of robotics data to non-robotics data. So I think it's a matter of time. But the other thing is every platform that calls themselves robotics is getting lumped into that. You're not comparing apples to apples. So I think as you start to raise the bar on what is robotics, and then there are some companies who are going to undoubtedly push Striker and push the leaders in the industry to get better and do it faster. Once you start to see another platform or two come along that really pushes the big guys into putting more time and energy into the platforms, I think you're just going to see absolutely continued growth from here on out. And I do think the growth rate is going to outpace even the expectations that you just talked about. One thing that I'm seeing some growth in, your name's attached to it a lot when I read on it, is wearable sensors and remote Mm -hmm. monitoring. What's all the buzz about there? You know, I sometimes feel like I'm bashing my head against the wall in this area and that I think it's the next game changer in our industry. I think it can be as impactful as robotics and many of the other things that we talked about today. Wearable technology as it currently stands is something that we either paste on the side of the leg, like motion sense with Striker, or in Zimmer's case, uh, an implantable sensor. And then we're collecting data and then using that data to impact that patient's outcome. That's the true value for me in wearables is I want something that I can say I'm using this device and it has a good chance of making your outcome better, not the next patient's outcome better. We're collecting all kinds of data from these sensors. The sensors are getting better and more accurate. What is really going to move the needle for patients in the future? What really do we need to pay attention to? Is BMI an important factor or not? Is type 2 diabetes or whatever, which things really move the needle and which things aren't as important as we always thought they were. Moving the needle, what a segue, sir. Hot off the presses, a USDA grant to expand access to health care in rural Oklahoma. Congratulations. Give us a lay of the land. What does health care look like now there? You talked a little bit about that at the beginning of the conversation. And what will this grant allow you to do that'll make things better? I start this story by saying that there are less fellowship-trained joint surgeons in all of Oklahoma than there were in the hospital system that I trained at as a resident. So there's a big need here in Oklahoma for really good, genuine health care. And unfortunately, like we talked earlier, many of the surgeons in some of these rural Oklahoma communities, they don't have the resources and support to be able to do some of these cases. Unfortunately, there's nowhere to send them. So they end up trying to do what they feel is best for the patient. And there are some complications that are generated because of that. What we really wanted to do was give access not only to patients, but also to rural healthcare providers, whether it be primary care or surgeons in your field. What we ended up doing was writing a grant to provide those small communities and and some of the smaller Indian nations hardware that they would need in order to have a full telemedicine visit with myself or one of the colleagues in my practice. If they have a patient who is potentially in need of a joint replacement or a revision joint replacement or might have an infection or major orthopedic complication, we're immediately available to either that practitioner or to that patient to help them through their journey. And we're not going to require them to drive two or three or four hours to Oklahoma City 
and spend every bit of all their quote-unquote extra resources to just figure out what the problem is and what they need to do to treat it. So we wanted to make it easy so that you couldn't say no. So we're bringing it right to you. You don't even have to leave your front yard if you don't want to. We've talked about your work in underserved areas. One group of people I know you're very passionate about helping is veterans. I can think of a lot of reasons why anybody would want to do that. Curious, what's yours? You know, it's a great question. I'll start by saying my dad served in the Navy, and so that was always something I was interested in. I watched his experience with the VA, and certainly was not what anybody would hope for, and that was frustrating for me to see that. And then I started to work with one of my PAs, Randy Pate, who's a 22-year Air Force veteran, and he essentially was echoing some of the things that, you know, we all hear about the VA hospital system and the the care that our veterans receive. And so we set out immediately to participate in the Community Connect program, where essentially if there's a wait beyond a certain limit, patients who are waiting for that surgery at the VA can go out into the community. And if the doctors participate, they can have that surgery done at a hospital of their choosing with the surgeon of their choosing and have the same cost that it would be through the VA. So we worked hard to be a part of that program. And we work great with the team at the VA hospital who does an exceptional job of supporting our veterans here in Oklahoma City, helping them get the very best care that they can get as quickly as we can get it for them. Love your passion on that subject. Sir, uh, speaking of that word, what do you like to do outside the OR? And please tell us it does not involve a robotic arm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> my passion, my my most favorite thing to do in life is joint replacement. And so often my hobbies even revolve around that. I love reading clinical research. You know, Ira Kirschbaum's journal, Journal of Orthopedic yeah. Experience and Innovation. It's a real game changer for me. I, I see a lot of really impactful papers coming through that journal, and, and I love reading that. It's one of my favorites. And then beyond that, I'm a fisherman. So I absolutely love to fish. And both my kids, thankfully, love to fish, and so we enjoy doing that. It's the one thing that I do where the cell phone gets turned off and put away, and it doesn't get looked at until we're done. That's probably what I would tell you is my passion beyond joint replacement. Probably need to pick up fishing. My wife looks over and goes, what are you looking at? And I'm kind of embarrassed and she makes me show her the phone <laughs> and it's it's Becker's CFO report. Absolutely. I, like, I have no defense for this behavior. Absolutely. I agree. Well, doctor, we're passionate about box openers here at Device Nation. Any advice to them? You've certainly seen your share of us over your career in your operating room. What separates the good ones from the great ones? I can just speak from my own experience here. The things that move the needle for me are, I don't want to hear why the other guy's stuff is no good and why your stuff is the best. I'm going to make those decisions on my own as a surgeon. You're not going to talk me into or out of using one implant over another. Even if you're right, often my ego won't let me believe that you're right. So what I really want out of a rep is somebody that I can trust. I want two of everything at every single case. I never want to look at you and say, oh, I dropped that nine poly on the ground. Can you open another one and have you say, we don't have another one? You know, I want you to be as vested in the patient's outcome as I am. So if you're prepared for the cases and you've looked over the cases, you know, a day or two before and you've asked some insightful questions, that means the world to me. And again, I think there's some value in that. This is a hard one for reps to get, but if you've seen another implant manufacturer's product and you think it's actually pretty cool and it might work well in a particular scenario and you mention it to me, that probably makes me more likely to use your stuff than than anybody else's stuff as well. Well, Dr. Jacob, 
part of the requirements of being the device nation surgeon Santa is having a full, distinguished beard. Check. Helping others. Check. And BMI. I've got some concerns. You're going the wrong direction here. <laughs> Tell us about your weight loss journey. What's been working for you? Well, you know, for me, it started uh, with a patient. I don't have a hard BMI cutoff, but we keep it around 40. There are scenarios or times where we might push that a little bit higher, but, you know, we really try to stick to what the literature is kind of indicating at this point. And who knows if that's right or wrong, but I was sitting across from a patient and I could see it all over her face as I'm telling her she needs to lose weight, get it. And she's looking at me like, hey, buddy this is the pot calling the kettle black. And so <laughs> I just decided to go on this journey with this patient. I said, if you do it, I'll do it. And so um, over about a year's time, I've lost about 90 pounds. It started with Monjoro. That didn't last too long. I think I did that for about two months and then decided to do it with diet and exercise and, and just continuing that on for about a year and a half now. I'm pretty happy. My Knees don't kill me at the end of the day. My back's not sore and I don't do as much complaining about my shoulders and my feet. So I know I've accomplished what I wanted to. I worked at a hospital once that had an endless supply of chocolate milk, graham crackers, and peanut butter. And that was like my kryptonite. I don't know if you're a peanut butter guy or not, but it's hard to say no to a good 50 of those. If you don't eat peanut butter, you're probably not going to survive residency (laughs) because... At, at two in the morning, many times that little packet of peanut butter was about the only thing edible. I'm the same way. We have these tiny bags of chips and just junk. I mean, we do a terrible job as physicians and surgeons of practicing what we preach. And so I'd spend all day eating Cheez-Its and peanut butter crackers and then I'd get home and grumpy and late and I'd eat bad and I wouldn't work out and I'd go to bed and get up and do it again the next day. And so... I've made uh, many changes, and now I can sit across from those patients and say, okay, I've done it. I've done it. I've done the hard work. I did what you need to do, and I'll be here with you the whole way. So it makes it a little bit easier to deliver that speech. Well, deliver a closing speech to us in a sense, doctor. Giving you the microphone, we've got an international audience. One thing that you just wanted to leave the audience with, we've covered a lot of great subjects today, by the way. Is there one thing that you're so passionate about that you really want everybody to know about you or uh, just something that's near and dear to you uh, before we close up? Patients who are listening, colleagues who are listening, do your best to support the guys in your community who are doing the heavy lifting of clinical research. I rely heavily on industry support and grant money, and um, there's a local research, Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, that I work heavily with. Uh, If you get a chance to support any surgeons in your community who are doing some groundbreaking work in clinical research, do your best to make that job a little bit easier because it's not an easy one. It doesn't generate revenue, um, and often it's met with lots of criticism. Well, Dr. Jacob, we've talked a lot about some of your distinctions today, but you've certainly earned the distinction of one of the highest honors in the orthopedic community. Surgeon Santa, congratulations. I I believe we also may have uncovered a potential for robotic arm present delivery. (laughs) I love it. Who wants to go down a chimney, right? That's right. It's been such an honor and a privilege speaking with you. You've been that BB gun behind the tree for so many reps and surgeons around the country, but most most importantly, for the patients in your practice. Thank you so much, sir, sharing your story and hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas and New Year's this year. I'll say the same to you. I'm incredibly honored to be a part of this and I can't thank you enough. 
And if I could say something positive about you, I've been a fan of yours on LinkedIn for probably longer than you've been of mine. The little tips and tricks that you share are so invaluable. I learn something weekly from you. Uh, I have a little notes section uh, on my phone in the notes app with your tips uh, written down on it. So don't stop doing what you do. Surgeons love it. You play an important role and, and, um, I'm a fan. I'm calling my wife right now, <laughs> sir. We're canceling Christmas. It can't get any better for me right there, yeah. right? That's that one present. Well, I mean, and uh, I've heard so many guys talk about you and the knowledge you share and what you bring to the table. I was fortunate enough to work with a tech rep in Cleveland. His name was Brett. We all called him Rain Man because he knew everything about every single implant ever made <laughs> and every little quirk or nuance, every hospital system needs a guy like you who knows a little bit about just about everything. And so thank you for being that guy. Well, I don't know quite where to go from here, but I will give it a try. Let's start with a humble and sincere thank you. Those words coming from someone of Dr. Jacob's stature, that's, uh, didn't expect that under the tree this year. Just such a privilege to speak with him and, and such a privilege being connected with the greatest audience in all of this podcast medium. Thank you for an amazing year and all of your contributions to this show. And while we're here, there's something I want to share that I've been thinking about for a while. When we start out the show with the cheeky little tagline, the voice of operative orthopedics, I just want to let you all know that voice is you. So again, thank you for your inspiration and your story. A huge thank you to Dr. Paul Jacob for coming on today and really look forward to this coming new year. I contend, and I've said it before, this is the most exciting time to be in this industry. Some just incredible ideas, stories, and interviews coming your way to take you from good to great in 2024. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. Happy Festivus. Now about that email regarding next year's quota.